With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. The FCPA Compliance Report is the longest-running podcast in compliance. Engaging a wide variety of compliance-related guests and topics, each week Tom Fox brings you the top commentators and information which will inform your compliance program going forward. Join us again for the top podcast in compliance, hosted by the voice of compliance, Tom Fox. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode, and I have Kevin Avakoff and Eileen Osorio. And today we're going to talk about a topic that probably does not get the play that it should in the United States, uh, but it is a topic of uh, high interest right now in Brazil. So uh, both Kevin and Aileen, thank you so much for visiting with me today. It's 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 our it's pleasure. pleasure. And uh and uh, I, I'm, I'm honored to be joined today uh, uh, by my friend and colleague, Aileen, who's a constitutional law professor in Brazil and, uh, and a former Supreme Court clerk. So we have uh, very good authority with us today, Tom. So we're going to take up the general topic of monies that are generated from anti-corruption settlements, both in the United States and Brazil. And where does that money go? This podcast was triggered by an excellent article that Kevin and Aileen co-authored entitled Corruption Settlements, Coronavirus, and the Road Paved with Good Intentions. I'm going to focus on that last part, the road paved with good intentions, and really ask you both, uh, what led you to uh, write this article? Well, really glad you asked, and and thanks again for, for having us today. You know, we 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 started off. You know, the the we all know the the road uh, to hell is the one paved with good intentions. And when we saw what was going on in Brazil, and we'll talk about that in a moment, it reminded me of the great debate in the in the U.S. around what happens with uh, settlement proceeds. And as we saw Brazil doing this uh, particular kind of allocation. It really caused us to focus back on the, the age-old question and then to put it in a new light with uh, the way Brazil was handling it. So um, recently, at the request of the Brazilian Prosecutor General, the Supreme Court redirected the unspent portion of the Petrobras anti-corruption settlement to be used in the fight against the COVID-19 pandemic in Brazil. And we noted a recent trend in Brazilian anti-corruption settlement toward directing at least part of the proceeds um, to specific actions or causes. And because Brazilian law does not provide for uh, the allocation of penalties deriving from anti-corruption settlements, persecutors appear to have now a certain leeway to earmark this fund. 
As we will discuss, the Petrograd settlement is a very stark example of the flexibility that, that is currently due into the beginning process. And of the discussions of potential problems it may raise. Elena, it might be interesting if you could walk us through the uh, history of the Petrobras settlement in terms of where the funds were going to go, what was initially proposed, and how it got to uh, benefiting education and environment, at least initially. Sure. It's, um, it's a longer story. So what happened is that um, the, the Petrobras um, settlement with the U.S. authority um, directed 80% of the penalties to um, Brazilian authorities. And this to be defined by an agreement with the Brazilian prosecutors. What happened was that the, the Brazilian prosecution office entered into a, an agreement with Petrobras under which 50% of the penalty would be allocated to broad public interest initiatives and the other 50% to compensate shareholders. And in a very unusual arrangement, the agreement provided that such amounts would go to special funds managed by a foundation to be established by the Federal Prosecution Office. And the, and the prosecutors would then oversee the allocation of funds. But the Supreme Court suspended the agreement at the request of the Prosecutor General on the grounds that it violated the separation of powers. The Prosecutor General, the speakers of the House and the Senate, and the Attorney General reached an agreement under which the funds would be directed for education and environment protection. But why education and environment? When the negotiations were taking place, the Amazon forest was burning and this received a lot of attention from the media. And the Prosecutor General considered that the urgency of the environment situation justified the, the, the allocation of the funds. And I think that with regards to education, the Prosecutor General just argued that directing money to education would serve the broad public interest, allowing the country to reduce um, social economic disparity. So how did, or rather, what led to the change, or at least the request to the Brazilian Supreme Court to perhaps change or redirect those funds, Aileen? In the same way that the decision to allocate funds to the environment as a function of current events, the state of sanitary emergency prompted the Prosecutor General to petition the Supreme Court to reallocate the unspent portion of the settlement funds to the fight against um, the pandemic. And it's interesting to um, see that other judges um, followed suit. There are already similar decisions in Rio de Janeiro, and I wouldn't be surprised if this become a model followed in other significant settlements, including ones that are being worked on right now and I can say there are already negotiations regarding JDS. So if I could maybe turn now to some policy discussions, um, I have some 
uh, fairly strong, strong thoughts on this. But uh, Kevin and Aileen, where do you guys shake out on who should decide where the proceeds from fines and penalties in anti-corruption settlements go? Yeah. So, I mean, it scares me a little, Tom, that you, you've already staked out some ground, but haven't said what it is. So uh, I hate to disagree with my host, so, uh, but I'll take a chance anyway. Uh, you know, it's uh, a long time ago, some, some smart guy said, uh, you know, the democracy, sloppy as it is, is the worst system of government except for any other. And I guess uh, I continue to hold to that. Uh, when we look at the two plus billion that's already been allocated in connection with uh, the coronavirus crisis here in the U.S., it went through, you know, the legislative, uh, bicameral legislative and executive processes moved pretty quickly. Uh, there was some pork in it, as, as always is it the case, uh, in the U.S. Uh, politics certainly reared its ugly head, uh, during the process before and after. But, uh, we can, conti- I continue to believe at least that uh, having elected representatives uh, and an elected president making uh, decisions about the allocation of public resources uh, is probably in the long-term best interest of a civil society and a democracy uh, because people have an opportunity to uh, cast their vote to decide that those people aren't doing a very good job. Uh, but that, that, you know, that, that may be what's right for the U.S., not necessarily what's right everywhere. And uh, you know, Aileen will comment on, on Brazil in a second, but, you know, it's exactly in circumstances like this where there is nothing but good intentions and, you know, allocating funds to something like coronavirus and, uh, you know, trying to uh, alleviate this, the horrible suffering caused by the pandemic. Uh, it's exactly in those circumstances where everything is obvious that you have to look a little deeper uh, and worry that the next time maybe it won't be so obvious. And if you put the hands in a, a singular person or even a couple of people who are not elected, uh, the decisions they make may not be in the overall best interest of the public. Uh, and it might not be anything they could do about it. But, uh, you know, Aileen could give you a perspective from Brazil, if you will. Please do so. Sure. I think that I think that um, my first comment is that I agree that individual decision-making and kind of taking the decision on the allocation of the budget out of the political democratic process have several dangers. But why do we think prosecutors and judges have legitimacy to make such policy decisions? But maybe in Brazil, there are kind of elements that in light of recent events, um, that cause people to have less trust in the political process. In any case, because of the democratic difficulty involved, at least Brazil should um, formalize the process and have kind of a clear legal basis for such a locative decision. It cannot continue to do it informally as it is now. It is true that no one would argue against directing funds to the fight against COVID, but people um, may question other types of allocations, for example, if the funds are directed to unions or NGOs. So at the end, I think maybe in Brazil, what we sometimes miss is this basic trust in the political process that is, um, that the U.S. Um, has. 
So I'm going to uh, perhaps take it in a little bit different direction because I feel like the safest way is to pay the funds into the general registry of the country and let the political process determine how those funds are distributed. Um, and I say that because I don't want to incentivize prosecutors any more than they're already incentivized to try to go after targets that either may be easy targets, maybe politically or reputationally expedient targets, or maybe targets with a lot of money. Um, in, uh, I guess my experience is, uh, is somewhat tempered or informed, I should say, by the big tobacco litigation uh, here in the United States, where uh, state attorney generals really fought for uh, the states and got allocated monies. And then I saw the states uh, allocate those monies. And then the really the next question is, well, who can we go after next? And there's been a series of large corporate clients that state attorney generals have basically gone after and gotten lots of money from. Uh, sometimes it goes into the general funds of the state. Sometimes it's allocated for specific purposes. Uh, I would just like to, to see it go into a general fund. In um, 2009, the Congress, when it was debating the original formulation of Dodd-Frank, had a whistle, uh, not a whistleblower, but had uh, SEC monies. Uh, SEC would be funded directly from its uh fines and penalties collected under white-collar crime uh, and prosecution under Dodd-Frank going forward. And I was vehemently against that because I don't want the SEC incented or incentivized uh, to go after people to uh, basically uh, on a contingent fee to get more funding. We see that at the uh, serious fraud office in the United Kingdom. So if it goes into the general fund of a country, as it does with FCPA uh, settlements here, uh, at least we have the, the control mechanism or oversight, Kevin, that you articulated of having a uh, democratic government who's put a budget in place that's over, overseen by our elected officials. Um, they And if they want to allocate those monies any way they can, uh, once it goes into the general funds, that's, that's uh, the dem democratic process to me is as messy as that may be. But I just find that uh, allocating specific funds to any uh, allowing the uh, prosecutors uh, to um, – Allocate monies is is a road that I'm just not comfortable with going forward. Well, and, and Tom, you know, if I could echo that, you know, you also have seen in the U.S. an awful lot of attorney generals, some in very large, important states, who have gone on to try and parlay their significant victories into higher office, you know, be it governor or otherwise. And that, you know, that certainly brings out the the bonfire of the vanities, if you will. Uh, that that you're you know you're alluding to a little bit as well and uh, you know SFO and uh, the UK aside you know you see unfortunate examples of uh, countries like Nigeria where they'll actually allocate prosecution to third parties with unfortunate results. Aileen, if I could ask. Um it, it appears, though, that as, as much uh, discomfort I may have, or at least unease, it appears that in Brazil, uh, the system works, and the system works perhaps for cultural reasons, perhaps uh, for other reasons. But what was what is your assessment of how uh, this system works for Brazil? 
So my personal assessment is that it does not work correctly, as you for the reasons you just mentioned. And I think that during the COVID pandemic, we'll have more and more settlements like the Petrobras one. And probably, you're right, the instances are not always co- the correct ones. But in, in Brazil, what happened is that this is very, let's say, um, new. So the... Um, so, so to understand the context, um, in Brazil, the development of the transactions and cooperative anti-corruption agreements is much more recent. It was expanded in 2013 when the Organized Crime, Crime Act was enacted and gained much more popularity and use in the context of the, our huge car wash operation. But it's, it's, I think we are still experimenting, and this is a policy discussion that Brazil will have to have soon. And there, I think Congress is already discussing this in the context of COVID, and we'll probably have some developments. Very and I, I, and I, and I would, I would add, and I guess I speak under Aileen's control here, who's the, the real expert on Brazil. But I, I think part of what troubles us the most when we look at Brazil is not the end result, because who could argue with it, but rather the process and the, the fact that this really uh, emerged from a, an entirely unwritten, ad hoc, informal process, uh, and just because you get to the right result once doesn't mean that uh, it doesn't lead to trouble down the road where the right result is less obvious. And that, that's, you know, it, you, you marry the, the impairment to the democratic process with a, a very informal ad hoc process that almost seems to be written as it was going along. And it really leaves you in, in an uncomfortable place from a democratic standpoint, notwithstanding the result. Uh, I guess I should say at this point, ditto, ditto. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, well, guys, I wanted to thank you both for raising this issue because, um, as I said, I don't think we really, if if we do think about this in America, we don't talk about it enough, Kevin. And obviously, Aileen, this is something on the forefront of practitioners such as yourselves, uh, lawyers in Brazil's mind. So this has been a a really good visit of a very important policy issue, and I hope we can continue this discussion. We'll look forward to it, Tom. Thanks, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I hope you will join me for next week's episode where I take up another topic of FCPA or compliance-related. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thank you again for listening, and I look forward to visiting with you again next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.